So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 7th chapter, the 11th through the 17th verses. However, our focus this morning is just going to be on the 11th and 12th. Here now God's word. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, as we focus in on just a couple of these verses, um, it is your power, your sovereignty, your eternal decree, your outworking in history, your redemptive history, your redemptive plan, all wrapped up in what we call providence that we want to talk about and see this morning. We want to recognize that you are a God who is so involved with us, so involved with history, so involved with our individual lives that to separate you from that history is a devastating thing for not just the society to do, but for the church to do as well. We pray that you would give us insight this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you know that you've heard the, uh, the saying that for every action, there's a reaction. For every cause, there's effect. Nothing really happens in a vacuum. When, when something happens, it impacts other things and other thoughts. And one of the most significant Oh, thought processes that have come along in modern time that have affected the way people think is the entire theory of evolution and natural selection that Charles Darwin and others developed a hundred or so years ago. Um, and and it, what a falsehood uh, in its application it is. But it's not necessarily evolution that I want to talk about. I want to talk about where that has led. The entire concept that we got here by chance, that the universe is not ruled by an all-powerful God who is sovereign in that rule that creates all things and all things that actually happen come about by his hand, but rather that we are the, the product of random occurrences, random events, and that we are here strictly by chance. Now, one of the side effects of that, and as I said, I'm not interested in going after that particular theory, but what happens is when you begin to see the world as coming about by chance, and chance being the master of this universe, well, then why should anyone be interested in history? Because after all, if history comes about as the result of simply a collection of random events, then what has happened before us 
will have no bearing whatsoever on what happens in the future because what's going to happen in the future is just as random as what happens in the past. Now, you, you may not look at it this way. But if you look around you and you see institutions beginning to crumble and you see irrational behavior in people and you see that, that you just can't explain the, the, the mindset, well, a very large part of that is that people have lost their sense of history. History is of no matter anymore. It doesn't matter what had happened uh, in, in times past. The only thing that is significant, it is what is happening with me right now. The here and now is all that is important. Never one to mince his words, Martin Lloyd-Jones addressed this speaking some 60 years ago in the 1960s. This is what he said about then 20th century people. He said, our fatal fallacy, the most stupid and most silly of all the erroneous ideas that characterize modern men and women is the idea that one can start from the position that there had never been a world or a human being until century, 20th century people came upon the scene. He goes on to say, that is the tragedy of today. People have an inflated notion of the 20th century man. But surely 20th century men and women are the biggest fools who have ever been on the earth. I said he didn't mince his words. Um, they boast of their learning, their knowledge, and their achievements. And tell us to look at that world or their world. What fools they are. This is all, I say, partly due to the belief that history began with them. You see, even in society, when people start thinking that the world started and ends with them, then they lose track of all of the lessons that have been learned through history because, after all, everything just happens by chance. Now, that's bad enough in the world around us, but when that mindset begins to sneak into the church, when the mindset that history is of no value, well, the first thing to go is going to be the Old Testament because it's full of history. And, and, and if history becomes unimportant, then the doctrines that are founded on that history get all skewed. And, and, and all of a sudden, heretical things begin to, to develop because there is no sense of God's work in history. There's no sense of God's providence. Because if you disavow history, you disavow providence. Because providence, the way that we would define it, is actually the outworking of a sovereign God, his, what we call his decorative will, his declarative will, what he declares, providence is the outworking of that will in history. So if you, if you disavow history and you're not interested in history, well, then you're not interested in the providence of God. And yet everything that we know and everything that we believe is a product of the providence of God. You're here this morning because of the providence of God. And so therefore, it is hugely significant and important that we get this right. 
And what we're going to see, the reason I'm bringing all this up, the reason what we're going to see this morning in our passage is what we call a divine appointment. Something that God brought about and something that didn't just happen by chance. Something that was ordained by him before the foundations of the world were set. That he brought about and because he brought this particular situation about, he has an amazing, glorious, wonderful message for us. And it's a message that we're going to have to divide between two weeks because there's too much text here for us. But it is a glorious message. Dr. Sproul, I'll read you the quote next week. But Dr. Sproul says that if this passage, this story was all we had, is all we knew about Jesus, it would be enough for us to know who Jesus is and what he came to do and the salvation that he brought with him. So that's a big statement. And we'll, we'll try to bear that over the next couple of weeks. Now, where we are in this particular story, or in Luke's gospel, we're just finishing with the Sermon on the Mount, and now he's given us some illustrations. But before I even go to the immediate context, let me remind you something. Let me remind you, let's go all the way back to the beginning of the book, and the very beginning when we started this study, we established something. We established that Luke, among many other things, was an excellent historian. That in his Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, they're filled with facts. They're filled with historical groundings, you know, where where he put it in the historical context. And so therefore, Luke is a really good example of God's providence as it is brought out in the various stories that come about. Now, as I said, we've just sort of wrapped up the discussion of the Sermon on the Mount and a couple of weeks ago, when we, when we were studying this, we noted that in the second half of that sermon, Jesus focused on um, the makings of a good disciple, what a good disciple was and what a good disciple wasn't, uh, the good trees and the bad trees, the good fruit and the bad fruit. And then we were surprised when we noticed that the example that he gave or the illustration that he gave of this kind of discipleship, well, the one who was acting like the disciple was a Gentile Roman centurion soldier. And those who were the Jewish elders of, the, of Capernaum were the ones who weren't acting like disciples. And we kind of focused in on the idea of worthiness and unworthiness because the centurion called on these Jewish elders in Capernaum to go and ask Jesus if Jesus would heal his servant. And the Jews said to Jesus, he's worthy. And he's worthy because of his own merit, because of what he's accomplished, because of what he's done for us. And so therefore, he's entitled for you to heal his servant. But when Jesus approached the man's house, the man sent another delegation out to him and said, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to set foot under my, uh, under my roof. So just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, at the very end of that message, I know it's been a couple of weeks now, but at the very end of that message, we talked about the man's faith. And we talked about what an amazing thing that faith was and the fact that Jesus marveled over the faith and said, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. But I brought the point out, and I don't think I made it strong enough, and it's going to be very important for this morning. I brought the point out that I don't believe Jesus is marveling at the man himself. 
That there's something intrinsic or inherent in that man that made him more clever, that made him better than the Jewish elders. And that's the reason he had faith. Because if Jesus were to take that track, then he would be in the same camp with the Jewish elders. He would be attributing some merit to the man that made him worthy of having his servant healed. Rather, the reason I think Jesus marveled at the man's faith is because here's a Gentile Roman soldier that God the Father has given the faith to believe that Jesus needn't merely say a word and his servant would be healed. Now, it's almost as if Luke wants to hurry up and make sure that we don't get the wrong impression about this man's faith and why Jesus was marveling over that faith. Because the very next story he gives us, which is this one, the man who's going to get healed is dead. There's no faith involved here. His mother's grieving. No one has any faith at all that brings this about. It is all done by the providence of God. And that's the point that... I think Luke is going to make for us this morning. So, therefore, with that kind of bringing us up to this and making a sort of a flow between them, let's take a look. Again, we're just going to look at the 11th and 12th verses. The 11th verse is classic Luke. Luke loves to give us these verses to sort of set apart a story. And and we're going to see he's going to give us the chronology, he's going to give us the geography, and he's going to kind of set the scene for us. So read with me in the 11th verse. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now, as I said, there's three things in there. There's the chronology, there's the geography, and there's sort of a setting of the scene. First of all, the chronology. He says, soon after. Actually, that's kind of a, uh, of a transliteration of a, a Greek idiom that is underneath that. Literally, it actually says, and it came to pass next. Now, the King James says on the next day it came to pass, but that's reading something into it. Basically, the only thing the text says is that, and it came to pass soon afterwards. But the point is this. That Luke is tying this story closely together with the one we just saw. You don't want to separate these two healings or these two miracles that Jesus is working. One flows into the next and both of them flow from the Sermon on the Mount. These are all tied together intricately as far as Luke the historian does. So we want to make sure that we recognize that that discussion of faith and why Jesus was marveling at that faith is being further explained explained and exemplified by the story of a dead man being brought back to life, someone who could have no faith whatsoever. Well, the second thing that Luke tells us is the geography. Jesus went to a town called Nain. Actually, we have no problem figuring out where Nain is or was because it's still there. They spell it a little differently. But it is nestled on the northern slope of, well, they call it a mountain, Mount Moray. Sometimes they call it Little Hermon. But it's only about 1,500 feet high, so it's really kind of a hill. But it's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. They would have walked and about six miles southeast of Nazareth. It's right kind of in the middle of the Jezreel Valley, which is a valley that runs east-west, right sort of at the southern end of Galilee and at the northern uh, corner of Samaria, right along that area. A very rich and fertile valley, so it has a tremendous amount of history. 
Now, this little town has a commanding view right across the valley of Mount Tabor. And you remember Mount Tabor is where Deborah and Barak had that big battle with the, uh, the, the, the Canaanites and, and won that victory. It's also the place that many people think Jesus was transfigured. I don't happen to agree with them, but that's kind of the traditional site of that happening. Now, just a little bit to the west of that, you can see Nazareth, the town Jesus grew up in, about six miles away. And you can see very vividly the cliffs that they tried to throw Jesus off after they got angry at him on that Sabbath day. Well, just a little bit farther west and a little bit south is the city of Megiddo. So incredibly wrapped up in history. Even at the time Jesus is there, thousands of years of history had already built up at that place of Megiddo. Well, just a little bit east and south is Mount Gilboa, where Saul and Jonathan in the Old Testament both got killed. A little bit north of there is the little town of Endor, where the witch of Endor was. And just on the other side of this hill, on the southern slope, is the little hamlet of Shunem, where the Shunammite woman lived and where Elijah raised her son from the grave. So when we're going to have a discussion of history and providence, what better place could you be than to be in the middle of all that? But there's also something else about the geography that we want to make sure that we see. And that is that Nain is about a quarter of a mile north of the border with Samaria. And as you know, no respecting Jew would be caught dead in Samaria. So basically, this is the demilitarized zone. So what's Jesus doing going to a place that is almost on the border of Samaria? But that's where this event occurs. um, Because the event and the discussion is going to be all about things that are defiled, that are cleansed by the power of the compassion of Christ. Well, anyway, that kind of gives us the scene set now. Let's take a look at this 12th verse where it, it continues to set the scene and gives us sort of the action of it. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, the reason that I'm going to divide it here is, is not because it's a natural division. Really, it would be nice to have done this and to all together, but we'd be here for two hours if, if we were going to do that, so I had to divide it someplace. So this speaks of a providential meeting. This speaks of a divine appointment. So that's where we're going to focus our attentions this morning. Notice, first of all, that he was drawing near to the gates of the city. Now, a little town like Nain, which is small then, smaller than it is now, usually would not have a wall built around it. That was meant for bigger, larger cities. And as I said, we know where it is. They've done archaeological excavations around there. And no wall has been found around the ancient city. So why would there be a gate? I mean, usually a gate is to let you in a wall, but if there's no wall, then why would a gate be there? Well, actually, that wasn't that unusual, because in the ancient world, in the ancient Israelite world, lots of things happened in the gate besides it just being a way to get through the wall. For instance, 
You remember the story of Boaz and Ruth because Boaz wanted to adopt Naomi and therefore Ruth as their kinsman redeemer. Well, when he did that, he called the elders together to meet in the gates of the city because that's where they had their meetings. That's where business was conducted. That's where court was held and judgments were made in the gates of the city. So whether or not you have a wall or not doesn't matter. The gates of the city had a function. But the gates of the city also sort of marked what was inside the city and what was outside the city. Because so much of, of Israelite law was stated, well, this is going to happen outside the city. If a, a young man defiled his parents and, and, and acted hatefully towards them, the law says take him outside the gates of the city and stone him. Well, that's what they did to Stephen when they stoned him in the books of Acts. They took him outside the gates of the city. That was where bodies were buried for the most part. Sometimes the king would be buried on the inside of the city. But for the most part, bodies were buried on the outside. And so that is what's happening. They're going outside the gates of the city. And the gates are sort of the marker of what is inside and outside. Now here, once again, we're just going to kind of step into the importance of history. Because there's an idea that is expressed when we start talking about things that happen outside the city. Because outside the city gates was a place for the things that were defiled. And Jesus is all about taking that which is defiled, which no one wants, and making it clean again. Remember what he has already said in Luke. He says, I did not come to call the righteous to repentance. They don't need me. They're already so self-righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. And so we've already seen him working with the defiled. We saw him heal a leper who no one would get near because he was unclean. We saw Jesus hobnobbing with the rowdy friends of Levi at his house and eating and drinking with them, making the Pharisees furious. And now we just saw him actually head to the house of a centurion, a Gentile, was willing to walk in the house and heal his Gentile servant. These are all things that the Jews wouldn't touch because they were defiled. So what happens outside the city gates is often where the defiled are sent. That's a big lesson for us, my dear friends. Too often I hear people say, I'm just not ready to come to Jesus because my life's such a mess. I I need to deal with that sin before I come to Jesus. I need to clean myself up before I come to Jesus. I actually had a man who told me one time after I shared the gospel with him, he says, man, that sounds great, but I can't come to Jesus because I can't stop cussing. Once I stop cussing, then I'll come to Jesus. That's not the way it works. Come just as you are. Jesus is the one who cleanses us. Jesus is the one who makes us able to stop cussing, to stop sinning. it's, It's a cleansing of that which is defiled. And that, brothers and sisters, happens outside the gates. In fact, you may remember... It was outside the gates that Jesus also was crucified near the gates so that people could see it. But that's where they did the things that were defiling. They, they did them outside the gates. And once again, let me just step into this whole discussion of history and providence because that means nothing to you. 
unless you put it in its historical uh, 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 context. In other words, it's just a chance happening. This just happened to happen outside the gates. No big deal. It could have happened inside the city just as likely as it happened outside the city. But the fact that it happened outside the city brings an entire association into play. Because that's where defile things are made clean again. That's where those with no merit of their own no goodness are turned righteous by the work of the Son of God. And we have to go way back in history to get the fullness of that. Because when God brought his people out of, out of Egypt and brought them to that place, that Mount Horeb, to worship him and gave them those Ten Commandments that we just read, those Ten Commandments, as Paul makes clear, absolutely condemn the people. But God in his mercy and grace and compassion, not only did he give them the law so they would know what was sinning and what wasn't sinning, he also gave them a sacrificial system whereby they could have their sins atoned for, paid for. It happened once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Two goats, one slaughtered, and the blood taken into the holiest place on earth, the Holy of Holies, and sprinkled between the outstretched wings of two cherubim on the mercy seat. And that is where God came and accepted that sacrificial, substitutional atonement on behalf of the people. And then the other goat, and you guys know this, the other goat, the priest would, would lay his hands on and symbolically transfer the sins of the people to that goat. And then what would they do with him? They would drive him out of the camp, out of the gate, out where the defiled things are. Because God had separated the sins of the people from them. The fancy words in theology are the propitiation, the covering, the payment of those sins, and the expiation, the removal of those sins as far as the east is from the west, as if they had never, ever occurred. That's what happens outside the gates. And that's what's going to happen here, folks. This is one of the most beautiful pictures that you're going to have of the redemptive plan of God wrapped up into one. And it happens outside of the gates where the defile things are on the way to Sheol, on the way to the grave. That's where Jesus meets these people. What an extraordinary concept that is. What happens when people lose sight of history? What happens when... History gets disavowed. What happens when you start switching things around and you don't see things as God's providence coming to bear over the, over the millennia of history? All of a sudden you begin to change and alter the fundamental doctrines of the church. Like those who are now saying there is no such thing as a substitutional sacrificial atonement. God would have never done that to his son. He's too compassionate. He's too loving. Well, we're going to talk about that next week. How a compassionate God can allow suffering. Because we're going to see both of them in this story. But they say God would have never done that to his son. Even though the Bible makes it clear he did. They say, and this is virtually blasphemous. I hate to even mention it. But what they say is that that makes God a child abuser. What an idiotic, shallow, um, totally off the mark way to look at the atonement that God has brought about. That's not even the gospel. 
And yet that entire movement is gaining traction, especially in younger churches with people who call themselves evangelicals, folks. That's what happens when you forget history, when you lose track of God's redemptive plan and providence as it is manifest in history. Well, it's probably enough about the gates. Let's move on and see what's going on as this group of people come down. Notice as we get some details about it. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold. And whenever you read that, uh, that, that, that means that the writer is telling you, pay attention, look. Behold, take a look at this. Don't just read over it. Don't just pass through it. Slow down and visualize this in your mind's eye. So... He says, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now, three very important facts were given there. Obviously, a man has died. Later on, we're going to see Jesus go up and touch the beer. That's spelled with an I, not two E's. Um, to touch the beer, which is, would, would have defiled him. We'll discuss that um, uh, next week. But nonetheless, you have this group of people who are coming out, and it's a funeral procession that is exiting the town on its way to the place of burial. Now, in this particular sense, it was a particularly um, bitter kind uh, of a funeral, and three um, Facts are given to us, three um, descriptions. First of all, he was a young man. The mother is still alive and still walking. When Jesus raises him from the dead, he is going to refer to him as young man. Young man arise. And the word that Jesus uses for young man can also mean youth. This could be a teenager as far as we know. So it's a very young man who has died way before his time. Before his time comes. So it's an untimely death. And I know from experience, the, the, the most difficult and sometimes the most bitter funerals and memorial services that I have conducted have been for young men or teenagers. Because there's a sense of this just isn't right. This just, just isn't God's providence that a young man would die like this. Well, to make it worse, this was an only son. And to be an only son means that you're a firstborn son. And so what that means is that the bloodline of the fathers and the father's father, at least the father, stops right there, snuffed out. Now, the Jews in that time saw their eternity, their afterlife was very much tied together with the continuation of that family line. So that in and of itself was tragic. But there was a special kind of mourning that went on when it was a firstborn son or an only son. Jeremiah puts it this way in um, his prophecy, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the horrors that would occur there. He says, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation. So the mourning of an only son is more bitter than just normal mourning is. Zechariah puts it this way, speaking messianically about Jesus 
when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. It's a special degree of sorrow and, and grieving would occur when it is an only son or a, a firstborn son also the same way. Zechariah goes on and says, weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn son. So this particular funeral procession is deeply in grief. But the most tragic part of it is what comes next. Just a little detail that the mother is following right behind the bier and she's a widow. And what that means is that there's no one to look after her. Her whole world has just fallen down around her ears Once again, we can look at the story of Ruth. Remember Ruth? That was what happened with Naomi. She had a husband who died. She had two sons, and they both died. That left her with her daughter-in-laws. One stayed. Ruth followed her as she returned to Bethlehem, looking for someone to take care of her. Because in those days, widows didn't have any options. They were the poor of the poor. And so therefore, this woman whose life has just come unglued is following her poor son's beer, crying out because there's nothing before her except devastation, poverty, and destitution. That's when these two groups meet. That's the last part of this verse. We read that a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, a considerable crowd um, kind of reflects the way that funerals were held in those days. In our day, funerals, memorial services, celebrations of life, are, they're more of a social thing. We go to the services of people we know, and we want to honor people that we had some kind of social contact or relational contact with. Not so in those days. At the, at the command of the rabbis, it was mandatory for everyone in town in good, in good relationships with them would attend the funeral. So literally, the whole town was emptying out. Now, here's what I want you to see. That this whole, all is here for you to visualize it. So out of the town, we have a considerable crowd coming this way, headed towards the place of burial. Out of the Jezreel Valley comes an entirely different crowd headed into the city, and the two crowds are going to meet right outside the city gates. Now, if you have that in your minds, here's what I want you to do with it, all right? I just want you to turn it like that. Because the ground's not level where they are. Okay, it's a 1,500-foot um, hill that the, that the town is built on the side of. The gates would be two to 300 feet at least above the ground, uh, uh, the, the floor uh, of, of the Jezreel Valley. So you have two different groups. One group coming out of the city on a funeral procession. See if you can visualize this. Coming down a relatively could be a very steep incline down a rocky road carrying the body of a young man who died way before his time. Now, from the other direction, you have a different crowd, a completely different crowd, following Jesus, making their way up that incline, and these two groups are going to meet. Now, notice the demeanor, the mood difference could not be more different. 
I've already explained to you why this was a particularly um, grievous group of people, uh, particularly mourning. But just because it was somber and dark and, and, and sorrowful does not mean it's silent in any way, form, or fashion because there was a lot of vocal mourning that would go on, yelling and scream, actually shrieking at the tops of their lungs. That's the way that they would get the emotions of their mourning and their grieving out. So this is the... the the, the demeanor of the group coming down. It, it, it is all about sorrow and, and grief and mourning. But that's not the demeanor of the group making its way up the mountain. They're following Jesus. They're excited. They're anticipating a great miracle. There's joviality. There's joking. There's a good mood in this group. Now these two groups are about to meet and have a head-on collision outside of the city gates. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a very symbolic um, picture. And it doesn't mean it's not historical. But what it means is, is that we need to step back and we need to see what this represents. It's not hard to understand what that group coming out of the, uh, of the city represents. That's death. Death is on its way out of the city because it's an untimely death. It's a miserable death. And here comes Jesus, the bread of life, the living water, the one who has life in and of himself coming up the hill. And the two of them are going to meet. The reason I had you see the topography is because death has the high ground. Death is in its natural position. Because every single one of us are on this hill going down. At the bottom of the hill is the grave. That's Sheol. That's where we're headed. That's the natural progression of every person on earth is headed down that hill. When you pour water on a hill, it flows down to the bottom. When we in our natural state go through our lives, there's only one thing that waits for us. And that's the grave. And that procession of death is about to meet life. Now what happens when... A hot front meets a cold front. You have fireworks, don't you? Something spectacular happens. But that storm is destructive. This is the opposite. Because we're going to have a constructive meeting. Because life is going to swallow up death. And we are going to see that in the, in, in the way that this progresses later on. What a beautiful imagery of what is actually happening um, or what is going to happen in this, um, this meeting of these two people or these two groups. Now, let's kind of back up from this. And once again, let's, let's look at it from the perspective of the way we started out, looking at it from the perspective of God's providence. Do you think... That this is a chance encounter. Do you think that Jesus just happened along at the exact time that a funeral is coming out of the city? Now, funerals were not announced in this kind of a culture. Funerals usually happen within the 24 hours of the time of the death because bad things start happening to bodies in that sort of an environment. So they would hurriedly get the body into the tomb or into the grave. 
So therefore, they were never announced. They were never done in advance. Jesus couldn't possibly have known that this was going to happen. He makes a trip from 25 miles away. He's got a whole crowd of people following him. Where did they come from? They must be looking for a miracle coming along the way, picking up those and his disciples with him. Now, there's no way he could have known that in a human sense. So is this something that just happened by chance? Because guess what? If it happened by chance, none of the specifics of this make any difference. It's just a poor widow whose life is going to fall apart. Jesus could have missed this whole thing if he delayed just a few hours. That poor boy would be in the grave and the mother would be looking at a life full of destitution and loneliness. But this didn't happen by chance, you see. This didn't happen as a random event. In fact, this is the providence of God. And the providence of God, it was decided before the world was created that God would send his son to this poor widow to give her her son back. That's the kind of compassion our God is. We're going to talk about that next week. This doesn't happen by chance. God doesn't do things by chance. Nothing happens at random. And so therefore, this meeting outside the gates at the exact time in this kind of a funeral with this kind of situation was exactly what God wanted it to be. And if you take that away, if, if you lose sight of history and you lose sight of God's providence, there's no way that this is going to mean what it means. It is a beautiful presentation of God's redemptive plan. And God's redemptive plan happens in history. You do realize something, don't you? And I know I'm preaching to the choir now because I'm acting like you guys don't believe in the providence of God. I know that you do. But if you disavow the providence of God and you take God out of history and you separate him from his history... Well, nothing then that has happened throughout the history of the Old Testament means anything. You you, you have to completely disregard Genesis 3.15, that proto-evangelium, the first presentation of the gospel where God says, I am going to bring this whole thing about. And somewhere down the line, there's going to be a son who is going to come and stomp on the serpent's head, and I am going to restore the relationship that you just lost. That means nothing if there is not God's providence, because that is what would bring it to bear. All those great covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, that means nothing. (laughs) There's just chance occurrences unless they're all part of the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. And all of that happened in history. And so God is the, is the, the orchestrator, the ordainer of all that comes to pass and nothing happens by accident. It's kind of sad that many of the same people who are beginning to disavow the, the providence of God are the same people who want to talk about, well, God just gave me a prophecy. I, I just, God just told me what's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, really? Where is prophecy without the providence of God? Prophecy is just something that God reveals now that he plans on doing later. If he's not planning on doing something later, then your prophecy means nothing. 
And all 400 some odd fulfilled prophecies that are so important for us in the Old Testament and understanding that Jesus is exactly who we said he was, none of those mean anything because they just happen to be incredible circumstances. Do, do, do you see? Do you see how silly it is if we try to remove God from history? And once again, you say, nobody does that. Oh, really? One of the most devastating thoughts that's going on right now is the idea of open theism. And open theism, you know, it's, it's, it's more, but it's, it basically says God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. Because that means he would have had to know that disasters and bad things will happen and God is all love and compassion and there's nothing bad and so therefore God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. He's as clueless as we are. Oh my goodness, I couldn't live in a world like that. I am so happy that God knows what's going to happen in the future and I don't. That's why we keep going to him and asking him that he would guide us and direct us. If it's willy-nilly and he has no idea what's going on, then... Why do we need to ask him for a direction? Well, I've just kind of butted up against a huge subject, one that we can't possibly do justice because there are so many examples in Scripture. But let me just give you an object lesson, just one illustration of what happens when you separate God's providence from the things that we do in the church and that object left then is right in front of us. We, we, we just took this supper. So what does it mean that we maintain a sense of history when we gather at that table? I can't remember when. It's been some time ago. Kay and I were at a, another church, and I kind of feel that I'm probably combining several events at the same time here. Um, my, my memory gets fuzzy as I get older, but I certainly see these now as all happening at the same place. It was one of these happening churches, you know, where you didn't go to worship, you went to experience a happening, you know, the countdown and real excitement and the Holy Spirit is here and, 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 and they would have great music and great lights and all kinds of things to, to create the environment of a dynamic spirit. And I remember thinking when I was there, if this is God's spirit, why does he need the music? Why does he need the lights? Why does he need all of these orchestrated and rehearsed efforts to create an environment that seems like the Holy Spirit when he's here anyway? Isn't he powerful enough to make his presence known just by his powerful presence? Well, anyway, I'm almost positive that in their bulletin they advertise that they that they serve the Lord's Supper at every worship service. We never have a worship service that we don't serve the Lord's Supper. And so I thought to myself at the time, well, that's good. At least they're showing some kind of reverence for that, that they associate a worship service with the, 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 the administering of this sacrament. But when it came time to take the Lord's Supper, the band came back on the stage and started playing soft music at first in the background. And the minister came up and said, we're going to take the Lord's Supper now. It's, it's on that ledge in the back there. Anybody who wants to go take it, just get up, you know, while we're having the music and go back there and serve yourself. No discussion about what it meant. No reverence whatsoever. 
no uh, fencing the table for goodness sakes like, like I do to warn people not to eat and drink uh, uh, a judgment upon themselves as Paul says just say hey whoever wants to go back there can go back and, and take it you know virtually no one got up everybody's glued to the ban because they're being entertained and so even though they, they, they said we're doing the Lord's Supper there was, there was no history, there was no meaning, there, there was nothing that came along with it to explain what we're doing and what the significance of this is. Someone who really had a problem with this was Dr. Sproul, and I had him on various classes where he would talk about uh, the taking of the Lord's Supper. He wouldn't like the way we do it, he would find fault with this, because what he would say to me right now is, who told you you could serve grape juice? Who told you not to serve wine? Because I don't remember any place saying you can serve grape juice. I don't necessarily agree with him. But it was in one of those tirades, and boy, he used to rant on things like this. It was one of those tirades that he either had been to a church or he had heard about a church where with no sense of the history of communion, they had replaced the wine and the bread with popcorn and Kool-Aid. What a mockery of what this sacrament means. And that's the reason it is so essential that we maintain a sense of of history. Because this sacrament was instituted at a time in history, 2,000 years ago. Jesus and his disciples, after they had enjoyed the Passover, that is when he instituted this as an historical act. But when they took Passover, they were continuing something that actually started 1,500 years earlier. And if you're going to understand why we take this sacrament, you have to understand what God established 3,500 years ago. Because God's people were in bondage to a demonic, satanic ruler, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And God sent a deliverer to deliver them from that bondage. Just like God's people today are under the bondage of a demonic, satanic ruler, the prince of this world, and the sin that holds us captive. And God sent a deliverer, Jesus, to release us from that slavery. God brought his people out of Egypt in a powerful way. Well, one of the things that happened when he did that was the plagues that would break the back of the resolve of Pharaoh. And you know this, the final plague was the worst. He declared that every firstborn in all of Egypt, whether it be a human or an animal, every firstborn would die when the angel of death passed over Egypt. The problem was is that that the Israelites were in the land of Goshen right in the middle of Egypt. And so therefore God in his mercy and grace gave his people a way to be protected from his wrath. And the way that that protection was was through the blood of a Passover lamb spread upon the lintels and doorposts of the house. And when the angel of death saw the blood, he would pass over that house and every Everyone in it, that blood would protect them from the wrath of God. Now, 
the bread, the unleavened bread, has everything to do with God's providence. Because God is the one who led his people out. And he did it in a hurry. You better gird your, your belt and get ready. Because tomorrow morning, my providence is going to come to bear. The time is right. And I want you in front of the mountain in Horeb to worship me. That's why God sent his son Jesus. So that God's people could be released from that bondage and to worship him. So when Jesus took the Passover, that's what's in the air. That's the history of it. That's God's providence all wrapped up into that one incredible sacrament. But Jesus changes it because now we're in a new covenant. And he says, this isn't the blood of the Passover lamb. It's not the blood of the, of the Yom Kippur lamb. This is my blood because I will be the sacrificial atonement for your sins. And this bread that you're going to take, it is my body because I am going to go to the cross and I will become defiled for you outside of the gates. And every time you take that sacrament, remember that it was my body and my blood in history on a cross with God's wrath on me, protecting you, the propitiation, the expiation of your sins. You don't get that with popcorn and Kool-Aid, folks. I'm sorry. You only get it when you are focused on the history that we live in and the providence of an all-powerful sovereign God whose eternal decree, his decorative will, is being manifest in history through his providence. really bothers me that when we go the route of the Popcorn and Kool-Aid, you're not only disavowing the history of the Old and the New Testament, but all of the hundreds, thousand years of church history that has followed. You see, even though God's revelation stopped with the New Testament, his, his, his providence didn't. God's providence is still operating today. And when we think about this sacrament... And we think about all the men and women who died miserable and horrible deaths, fed to animals, burned at the stakes, cut in half, beheaded, tortured in deep, dark cells so that they could take this supper. And then we make a mockery out of it today because we have no concept of God's providence or the reformers. Who, after years of medieval Catholicism, twisting and turning and corrupting what this meant. And then out of darkness, light, once again, taking the Lord's Supper in the way that it should be taken. And they were burned at the stake for it. All of that is lost when you disavow history. All of those who have come before us, the price that was paid so that you and I can take this supper openly. Is all forgotten. Well, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. The world in which we live is God's world. The history that we engage in is God's history. The will that is expressed throughout history is God's will. Sometimes God allows suffering, absolutely. He allows people, good people, bad things to happen to good people. We're going to talk about that next way. I use the word good in parentheses or in quotes. You know what I mean. But... The problem that we see is that it is so unnecessary. And let me just leave you with this. 
it never accomplishes what people set out. They set out to try to make God more like the way they want him to be. They're just really projecting human traits to a a, a non-human supernatural God. But you see, you don't have to remove God from history to make God interested in your history. Because God is indeed, he is interested in the history of humanity. He's interested in his providence and his will coming about. But he is also interested in your history. Every single hair on your head is counted. To talk about his providence is to talk about a God who is intimately involved with you. And your life. And your history. A God who was so compassionate. That before time began... He designated that he would send his son to give the son of a poor widow back who lived on the edge of the land of the Samaritans. And so let me leave you with this. The reason you were here this morning, the reason that you know Jesus and love him is a result of God's providence, his eternal decree, His decorative will. And if you're a Christian. And you truly know the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus is not just your savior. He is your savior. But he's not just your savior. Jesus is not just your Lord and master. He is your Lord and master. But he's not just your Lord and master. Jesus is the Lord of providence. And providence is the reason you're here. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are in charge and we are not. Um, we are amazed at the degree to which the disavowal of the importance of history has progressed in our day. That people honestly and fully believe that the Old Testament is yesterday's news. Let's throw it out. That whatever has happened in the past has no bearing or it was done by the wrong people. So therefore, we are going to deconstruct it entirely and destroy every single one of the institutions that you have put in place to create boundaries so that society can exist without destroying each other. We're seeing those all ripped apart. And one of the reasons is because they have separated you from history. They have separated Christ from his teachings. And it is just as bad within the church as it is in the world around it. Lord, may we turn our hearts and our thoughts back to the teachings of Scripture, which have you in complete control of all that occurs, giving you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.